Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalio. When we say that this is a podcast about all things equine, we don't mean that we only talk to other horse people. Last week, we began a conversation with Lindsay Wood Brown. Lindsay is a member of the Clicker Expo faculty. She's a board-certified applied animal behaviorist with a master's degree in animal behavior. She's a Karen Pryor Academy course developer, and she's served on the KPA faculty since 2012. Lindsay consults for animal shelters across the country, and she was previously the director of operations for the Lynchburg Humane Society in Virginia, and then she served as director of animal training and behavior for the Humane Society of Boulder Valley in Boulder, Colorado. The shelter work means that Lindsay has seen hundreds of case histories when it comes to this discussion of counter-conditioning. It has given her a depth of experience that most of us can never even come close to. Dominique has had this topic of counter-conditioning on her wish list for a very long time. So when I heard that Lindsay was speaking about it at this year's Clicker Expo, I made a point of going to her talk. And I have to say, I loved it. So I invited Lindsay to join us for an afternoon's conversation. At the end of part one, we were stressing how important it is to adapt any of the protocols you read about to the individual you are working with. We'll use that as a good reminder to launch us back into the conversation. So I I think that's a profound statement and we need to make sure that we highlight it so that we don't just gloss over it and go running running on because it's very easy to to follow recipes mm-hmm. you know so i've 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 read the counter conditioning recipe and my recipe says that the dog is to look at me and i'm getting stuck and it's not really working and i you know it's i'm feeling really frustrated because i've read on the on facebook all these wonderful stories that people have shared about how this particular technique has worked so beautifully for their dog or their horse but it's not working for me and it's this the the following of the recipe so closely that the recipe fails rather than saying, well, within that initial um, counter-conditioning phase, I'm observing my animal's behavior. And based on what I get, what I see, I'm going to select behaviors to reinforce that will support the direction that I want the, the training to go. But if I Uh, try and stick too rigidly to a particular protocol, I may miss what my individual needs. Would that be a reasonable summary of what you just said? 
Absolutely. Yes. I think that's, that's very much it because just because, you know, um, one person says that, you know, your dog must look at the other dog and then look back at you, that may not, um, that may not benefit your goals, right? And it may not be what, um, what is even necessary, right? So if you have that other dog out there and your dog spots that dog and you do some counter conditioning work there and your dog is continuing to gaze at the other dog, but you've got the tail wag and an open mouth and, you know, relaxed body posture, like those are all behaviors, right? That are behaviors that are um, different from the problem behaviors mm -hmm. and reinforce them, right? Like select, select those, select what is, what your dog is expressing and demonstrating that is going to benefit your animal and, you know, your goals for this. Yep. I think too, one of the, um, you know, it's one thing when you're doing these exercises in a very controlled environment, but in real life, I think too, that we may have to adjust our goal and be realistic. And maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not ambitious enough, but you know, I'm not thriving for my dog to be able to cross um, another dog on the sidewalk. I'm, I'm, I don't think for me, it's a realistic goal. I want my dog to be able to have another dog move around at a certain number of feet, you know, if I'm across the street, it's pretty easy. But let's say I have a dog on the same sidewalk coming. For me, if I go on the on the property, you know, so when you need to uh, get a little bit of distance when you're caught in a situation like that, that would, for me, would be wonderful. You know, if I can have Canel just retreat a little bit, four or five feet, so we can look at the dog pass by, and then continue our walk. I don't want her to be friend with all the dogs that we encounter on walks. I don't think that's realistic. So sometimes maybe we have to accept too that as and find what is functional in our lives together. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's a beautiful statement right there. Finding what's functional in our lives together. And if functional for us looks like you spot another dog and we move over here for a moment and then information gather all you wish while that dog passes by and then we continue on with our walk. Like I, you know, I think I would call that success. Yeah. So given the way that you have reframed in your own thinking, the what you are doing when you are doing the counter conditioning how is it does it does it look any different now so if i were watching you versus uh watching you with a dog a couple years back what would i see would i see anything that's different well that is a very good question yeah um, i agree <laughs> i like that that's a great question uh, would you see anything that's different i would expect that um, it, that may be dependent on how I uh, describe what, what's the language I'm using at that moment, um, you know, to, ex to explain it. Um, I think 
my hope would be that what you might see is um, would be my ability to recognize when my dog is um, uncomfortable before there is any significant signs of discomfort so that I if I if you were watching me and I were doing a session you can keep using the dog dog example that I may uh, choose to adjust the conditions before it's evident that um, my dog's about to explode right I would so I think I would hope that right that because I am hopefully getting better at um, at, at observing and checking for that alternate behavior, that I would then be better at adjusting conditions so that my learner, you know, before my learner has any sort of, before there is an error, right? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I think so. Okay. So, yeah, in the in the horses. So let me take a, a and this is pre clicker training. I looked at the work of John Lyons and Lyons had some some interesting ways of talking about what he was describing, what he was doing. And one of the things that he emphasized is he was not particularly interested in the used to method of training. The used to as in, let me get my horse used to. So let me get my horse used to umbrellas. Let me get my horse used to flapping plastic. Let me get my horse used to cows. Let me get my horse used to moving cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because he said, you know, there's always something that you're going to encounter that is brand new that you haven't gotten your horse used to. And so if you're dependent upon your horse having seen these things in the past uh, for your safety that you may end up on the ground because there's always going to be that emu that comes running up the driveway and and I have now encountered enough people who have actually had emus running up their driveways and they were not living in Australia that um, that I I know the reality of some of these surprises and so what he worked on instead was he wanted uh, he would use something that the horse was concerned with and he would he would not start with the, at something that's at the level of the emu but uh, something where that was just a mildly novel stimulus and he would ask the horse to soften and give to the rain and if, if at first the horse was a little worried by this novel object he the horse would want to look in the direction of that object and and the horse would be slow to respond and after the horse had gotten used to the jacket hanging over the fence lions would say well that jacket is no longer of any use to me in terms of uh, getting of teaching this horse uh, that no matter what, no matter what kind of novel object is in the environment, that you can still soften and respond to me. And, and so he would introduce something new, some, some other stimulus. And what the horse was, what, you, what presumably the horse was learning is that 
even in the presence of something that is unfamiliar to you, if you soften and give, in Lion's case, it was not click, I will give you a treat. It was, I can keep you safe. You know, it's, this is not this is not clicker training that I am describing, but it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting launching point, I think, in terms of thinking about how do we how do we think about how do we use the the stimuli in the environment that our animals are reacting to? How do we use the the dog in the distance, the the person walking at a distance that is often, you know, the horse goes on alert and you think it's just a person, but for some reason they're not recognizing this shape as a person and, and they're on alarm or, you know, whatever it is that has caught the animal's attention. How do we view them? How do we use them? And that was, I thought, a very different approach from what I was encountering from the people who were teaching counter conditioning. I think, um, you know, if I flip the ABA lens on, which is what I was trying to do while you were describing uh, what Lyons um, was, you know, the approach, and it sounds like there was a, a clear behavior, right, that he wished to see. Yes. Clear alternate behavior. Yes. Enforceable. And then he adjusted, you know, a variety of stimuli that he could, you know, find, right, to, uh, to check to make sure that his horse, uh, can, you know, can you perform that clear behavior when the jacket is hanging here or when there is that person over there, that, you know, the shadowy figure? Yes. And so it, I feel like that, you know, that, that makes sense to me from that ABA lens. I like the clear alternate behavior there. He he had one, right? He defined it and he would yes. utilize it to um, to ensure that his horse was feeling, right? Here we go into the emotions piece, but you know, he was inferring that the horse felt comfortable or safe based on the animal's ability to demonstrate that behavior, you know, in a variety of different conditions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how it sounds to me. And so I'm over here smiling because it, you know, those, it's a neat example. Um, I think of that kind of that approach, but then tell me what you may have heard from, you know, you said lion's approach was different from what you were hearing from the, um, you know, someone who may be describing let's counter condition it. What would that description have sounded like? I think there would have been the lack of the clear behavioral alternative. Okay, excellent. You know what's great too about when when we look at it as behavior is that all the principles that apply to operant conditioning apply here too, meaning clean loops, everything we've learned about poison cue. Because one thing I learned in the past year uh, or two uh, listening to Jesus Rosales Ruiz is, and, and that I have experienced with Canel, is that the, when you get an emotional reaction, it gets attached to the environment. And what I have seen is that I have ruined 
some environment. You know, there's streets that I have ruined mm -hmm. because the emotional reaction of the dog is now attached to this street. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, this, this street is like, I don't know if I'm going to see the scary thing or not see the scary thing. And so when we discuss, for instance, with Jesus, well, what do we do if the poison cue is the arena? He says, and because there was someone in one of the uh, webinar, I don't know if you remember, Alex, she had this, this uh, horse who was fine with dogs outside of the arena, but something had happened in the arena. I don't know if it, the dog barked or whatever, but the horse was super scared of the dog inside the arena. And of course she cannot, you know, it's the arena. You, you, you don't have three of those. That's the one you have. And so she was asking him, what do I do? And he said, go back to where you have a clean loop. Go back maybe in the barn aisle, you know, and build from there. And so in a way, all, we, all the good principles we know when we're building behavior can be integrated here in the counter conditioning. Yes, I think I, I'm gonna to have to listen to you say that again when this podcast comes out because the, um, those were beautiful words. And yes, I think it is very much, all of those pieces are very applicable when we're talking about counter conditioning because now when we're talking about counter conditioning, we're talking about focusing on operant behaviors. Mm -hmm. Whereas before we weren't. Right? No, we were changing emotions. Yes. How do you do that? Isn't that? Like that's so exciting to me that now we can take everything that you know we've learned from all of these you know, greats in the field, and they're suddenly applicable, very, very applicable to us when we're trying to change emotional behavior. And I, like, I'm so I wish you could see me because I'm like smiling from ear mm -hmm. to ear. Like this is, it's just I just find this really exciting. Because <laughs> too, in a way, you know, and we we've become so fond of loopy training. And in a way, when you're doing counter conditioning and you're doing the gradual exposure to the trigger, mm -hmm. you're looking for a clean loop. Yes, absolutely. Everything is connected to everything else. I love that. Me too. I agree. Oh. And I love it as well. And physical balance creates emotional balance. I mean, that's what the horses teach us that. And so when you start to focus in on the behavior, the emotions track that and follow. If we're giving our learners control right, over their, uh, that, you know, they have a means to access outcomes that are valuable to them, right? Then if the emotion that tracks control, this is from Jesus, I'm not going to say it as well as he does. But if the emotion that tracks control over valued resources is happiness, right? Yeah. Then, like, now, now here we are, right? Because we are give, we are, uh, we have a clear behavior that we're looking for that our animal, uh, you know, has can use his behavior to access those reinforcers, and now we've got all of the um, emotions that we hoped for. So that dog who was guarding the food bowl and growling. Of course, all we can do is infer the emotions. We we are seeing what would 
we would call emotional behavior, but we are inferring the, the private internal state. So now the dog looks up from the bowl and lo and behold, he gets a piece of hot dog. Pretty cool. And he can get more hot dogs by coming away from the bowl. Very, very cool. And so now when he sees you coming into the room, even though the food bowl is right there, he's turning away from the food bowl, his tail is wagging, he's doing happy dance because you are a predictor of things that he wants and he knows how to get them from you. And he knows how to get them. Yep. And that is, I think, that's the key piece that I certainly was missing for quite a while with counter conditioning. So when it's not working, <laughs> um, do we have, like we say it's because we're missing a prerequisite or where the dog has not learned to cope in this particular environment, we need to go back and teach the prerequisite and lower the, the intensity. Do you have any examples and tips for real life that you've seen when it wasn't working and people changed things that perhaps they hadn't thought about in the past and it worked. Little things they changed and it, that made a difference. Do you have any uh, real life examples or tips that come to mind? I'm sure, let me think through some of the, some of my, let me sift through some of my thoughts. I think, um, you know, when, I mean, there's there's so many times right I've had someone come to me and say it's not working mm -hmm. and I think the places that I first look if it's not working and we're talking about counter conditioning and descents um, you know there are some kind of application mm -hmm. errors that are common yeah and those application errors could be that our order of events is uh, off. So, such as so for your for your uh, dog, let's say you're out walking, mm -hmm. and you know how hyper vigilant you become when you oh, I know an, an animal that you love dearly, and you know um, is you know going 100 to hundred guilty of that. <laughs> I have eyes all around my head. Exactly. I mean, we become very skilled observers of the environment. Sometimes I think I'm like, um, you know, it's sick because I see these things moving so far away, mm -hmm. you know, that like I'm super sensitive to the environment. I know. It's, it. it's a learned skill. It is. I mean, we, we become incredibly skilled at it. Um, and. But. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Uh, there are times where we may spot the other dog or mm -hmm. spot whatever the scary approaching stimulus is, right, before our dog does or before our horse does. Mm -hmm. and, and we pop that treat into her mouth, right? But she okay. hasn't noticed the approaching scary thing yet. So usually if you use a special treat for the counter conditioning and you pop it in her mouth, she'll say there's a dog somewhere. Where exactly. is it? Exactly. Exactly. That is, yes. Um, and, and that could be because every time I eat this treat, it predicts getting, seeing a dog, right? Yep. So there's a loop that we've built there somewhere along the way. Yep. Um, it could also be that um, 
Oh, I just lost my train of thought. But you were talking about the order of event. Yes. So yes, thank you. So if we if we spot the dog before she does, right? You spot the dog before she does, and you pop the treat in her mouth, then right? that starts to become a that can become a cue for her to look for the other dog. Mm -hmm. So our order of events, what we want it to be is that she sees the other dog, the sight of a not, another dog predicts getting that piece of food, mm -hmm. right? So that's the, that's the association we're trying to make through counter conditioning. Right. And, you know, inadvertently mess that up. If we pop that treat, if we spot the other dog and pop the treat in the mouth before she has seen the other dog, and then we start to get this loop of well, this treat, you know, I just got a treat. There must be another dog. Where right. And and all of these other kind of environmental um, things start to become cues for your dog to look for another dog, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. not what we want. So I think that is one of the um, application errors that I see pretty frequently, um, you know, when someone suggests like, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. I might check that order of events mm -hmm. there. Um, the other piece of it is the kind of that, um, that time between trials or reps, uh, especially if we're working in a more controlled environment where as human beings, we get into these, um, patterns, rhythms almost. And, um, you know, look at the dog over there, eat a treat, look at the dog over there, eat a treat, look at the dog over there, eat a treat, or, you know, approach the food bowl, here's a piece of food back away, approach the food bowl, here's a piece of food, back away. So there's a, a rhythm, mm -hmm. right? And uh, then we get into this loop where um, you know, eating the treat, the end of the treat, consumption of the food mm. is almost a predictor. To, that you're going to approach? Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. It's that it end. becomes the antecedent. Yes, exactly. For, yeah, for well, the undesired behavior. Yeah. There's your A, and now the behavior becomes look for, scan the environment, right? Find the other dog. And we get a loop that I think gets us into trouble there as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that is... Um, the, so we need to break the rhythm? What do we do? Yes, I think that there, if, um, and that's hard. We need um, to pause, or what do we yes, do? We want to not, um, we, need, we don't want to have that pattern there. So um, if I'm working in a controlled setting, like I'm working with that food garter, then I might hang out for a variety of, you know, so just differing number of minutes uh, before I approach the food bowl again. Mm -hmm. Because it's so easy. Do something else? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let the fact that, yes, I have a treat bag on and yes, there is a bowl of food in the room, but those things aren't the predictor of you getting this hot dog, right? The predictor of that is when I actually am approaching you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yes, so I'm not uh, punching out those trials with rhythm. That inter-trial interval, I think can be problematic to us when we're trying to do the, the counter-conditioning desense work. Is that a case where it would be really useful to have built elsewhere in a, in a good environment in terms of the dog being able to focus on you or the horse being able to focus on you, a broader repertoire of behaviors so that once you get that first iteration of the, that loop, you use that then as the entry point into a completely different behavior. Mm -hmm. You've looked at the dog uh, at a distance and I've given you a bit of hot dog 
And but instead of having you now look at the dog or move away from the dog, it's okay. Getting that piece of hot dog has broken a certain an, a di- another pattern. We've broken into a different pattern. Now let's go off and do something that's completely unrelated to the dog being present in the environment. But it would only be available if you had a, a large repertoire of behaviors to choose from. Yes. Because it sounds a bit like, I mean, what you were describing before sounds a bit like when Joe Lang talks about degrees of freedom and that you become a prisoner of a limited degree of freedom. So, you know, the in the degrees of freedom and uh, when and Joe Lang's a behavioral analyst who, who we reference every now and then because especially when we're talking about emotions but in the degrees of freedom the exact way that that's always described is suppose you are were a uh, you're looking at a high school student who is captain of the debating team and he is just he's an outstanding debater just brilliant brilliant debater and so you're looking at him, you think, oh, this must be, must be uh, just a really uh, confident, uh, secure, happy individual because look at how many prizes he's won debating. Look at how good he is at debating. But then if you really look at his situation, what you discover is, well, he's not really a very athletic person and he doesn't really have very good social skills. So... At lunch, nobody wants to sit near with him because he has very limited social skills. And he never goes to any of the other school events. He's, he's not a member of any of the sports teams. He doesn't go to any of the school dances because he's not very athletic. So the only thing that he can, that he's, can do is debate. And because that's the only thing he can do, he has to keep practicing it and and working on it because it's the only thing he can do. He has no other options. And so he just gets better and better and better at debating, really at the expense of everything else. And whereas his the other members of the debating team, they're more athletic. They have better social skills at, the, at during lunch. They are surrounded by a group of friends because they have those better social skills and because they are practicing those social skills, they're getting better at them, which broadens out some of the opportunities they have and they're members of the sports team and they have go out to the um, school dances, et cetera, et cetera. So their degrees of freedom keep broadening out, broadening out, broadening out, and they have more options available to them. So if they get into a sticky situation, they've got more repertoire to draw on, to to cope, to come up with a behavioral alternative that works, whereas the captain of the debating team has a really narrow range of behavioral uh, skills that he can draw on to cope with any particular situation. I'm, I'm always, and the, the, the real life example of that, before we... Uh, bring it back to animals, is is Andre Agassi, who wrote the autobi- his autobiography, which is called One, in which he described how, as a child, his father forced him to practice tennis after school. And his father built this machine in the backyard that would lob balls at Agassi, and so he could hit just hundreds of balls in the course of an afternoon. But 
he wasn't allowed to go spend an afternoon hanging out with his friends or playing video games or doing any of the other activities that most people were doing after school. And he was forced to play tennis. And he hated tennis. Hated it. He became a Wimbledon champion. A Wimbledon champion. World-class tennis player. And he hated tennis. But he was constrained. He had only one degree of freedom. It was all he knew. So I, I just wonder if in some of these situations where we're getting almost stuck that that the behavioral repertoire in is becoming too narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An interesting thought. So let's let's try to see how can we apply that. Let's say you have what you've been doing is you've been exposing. We'll take again the dog reactive dog example to other dogs that gradually at a certain distance. So now instead of giving chicken, we could ask for behaviors, play, do other reinforcements. How would we do that? Yeah, I think um, this, is, this is really interesting. Um, I, y- yes, like I guess my, what I'm thinking about is, um, you know, if you have built a repertoire of other fluid behaviors that in the condition of being with, you know, mom, right, being with my handler, I, um, I engage in these other behaviors to access reinforcers. I think that that could, could really buy you a lot here. Because let's just say, yes, we spot another dog. Here's your piece of hot dog, as, as Alex was saying. And now, you know, like we move over here a little bit. And I've just given you that piece of hot dog, right? Which puts us in this context now of it's like just me and you, honey. And, you know, what do we do together in this context, right? It's a, it's a yeah. little bit of a training context. And now you know, exactly. I, this reminds me. Do you remember, Alex, we talked once again about Kenneth. I had my farm at the time and there was this pile of wood with a squirrel in there. Oh, yes. And she was, she was at liberty on the property. And she went, you know, when, when that happened, she would go to that pile of wood and bark, 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 until the squirrel would do something. And, and I was surprised because usually, you know, people will say, well, don't feed a dog when they're over threshold because you're going to reinforce that undi- undesired behavior. But in this case, she wasn't on leash. She was, she was um, free. I didn't want to bag her. So I started click, clicking her. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and she, she, it actually decreased. And someone offered the explanation that perhaps when I clicked, it kind of shifted her into now we're in training mode. Now we're going to do some training. So, and, and I love training. And so the squirrel is maybe not as interesting as what we're going to do, which I thought was int- an interesting possibility. Yes. You know, a possible explanation. Yes. And I think that, you know, there may be something to that, right? Um, you know, you, you shift into that other context and the squirrel or the, uh, the dogs in the distance, they just kind of fade into the background, right? Mm-hmm if you have that repertoire of other behaviors, fluid behaviors that were, you know, um, were likely also taught with food, now your dog starts to offer them in this context, in this condition now. And I think that 
is a really beautiful moment. If I've, you know, if we've shifted from, yes, there are dogs around and now I fed you that piece of food and suddenly we're in this, you know, training together, playing together context and you're offering me other behaviors that you, know, you use to access this reinforcer. Like I think that that's, an, an, you know, I know Alex has an example. Of yeah, I had. I, I'm just horse that was like over threshold. Well, we we've talked horses and dogs, so it's only fair that we talk goats as well. Um, you know, and it's uh, just a recent example. I've been describing to you, Dominique, how Elian, uh, that one of the older goats, is is learning Spanish walk, and he thinks that this is a very cool behavior. He likes putting his feet up on things and he's now graduated to just having his to lifting his his uh, front leg up and doing that lovely Spanish walk gesture without needing any prop of any sort and he's really been enjoying this and I'm and it's a behavior that has grown in the barnyard but goats are very very vigilant animals they are very much aware of what is going on in the environment I would say even more than the horses, the goats are very because horses are super sensitive. To yeah, yeah. Well, I would I would say the goats are are even more. They're you know they're moving closer to the scale of a deer's reactivity versus a horse's reactivity. So when there are things that are unusual off in the distance, there's always a little shift in the level of attention that I have from the goats and there uh, you can see the body tension you're you can definitely their concern is visible so we were out just uh, the other day and something was different off in the distance and Elian was a bit on alert but I asked for uh, the Spanish walk gesture and he produced it and then I asked for it again and he produced it and the next thing I know he's just marching right along beside me and every time I ask for the that lift of the leg it's there and he has completely forgotten about the environment being a little bit nervous making on that particular day and it was just so fascinating to see the this real I mean it was just a black and white you're gonna be saying you should have been videotaping and I should have been it was just so really dramatic how quickly his emotional state shifted with and his ability to focus with me instead of being worried externally. And it's not that you were forcing him to do oh, something no. while he was super No, no, learned. no. No, and he and actually he's, relaxed. Yeah, and he's loose, so he could he could easily dash back to the goatery. So there's there's nothing that's holding him out in the area that we were working in. If he'd felt really insecure, he would have been gone. So there's nothing compelling him to stay with me. There's, there's nothing that is compelling him to produce the behavior that I want. We were far enough away from that sort of that, the uh, security of the other goats that changes in the environment could be a worry. But in this case, a behavior that was, that 
well, I won't, don't want to say was well taught because it's still very much in the teaching process, but all the teaching, the associations with learning this particular lesson have been in setups where that where he's had a high rate of success. He's had lots of reinforcement around it. It's a behavior that he clearly enjoys offering and it created an emotional shift. It's really interesting. I remember once we talked about this, Alex, we were talking about, you know, how sometimes horses are scared of the, the end door, the yep. other end of the arena. Yep. And I was asking you, this was almost in the very first years we met, I was asking you, so what do we do? Do we desensitize them to the garage door and it's all about the garage door and we'll gradually approach the garage door? Or do you do something else? And, well, you probably said it depends, <laughs> but <clears throat> I do remember that you told me um, that you had success with doing something else. Yeah. Then that it wouldn't necessarily be about the garage door. I would love to hear what Jesus, how he would explain that. Yeah. You know, what? It, these are the things we observe. And, you know, and Lindsay, you're... Right. I mean, this is you know, with from, with the shelter work and all the other work, the opportunities that we've that you've had that we have of observing behavior, of observing these protocols, we see what works. And then it's the all right. Now, what's the why be, behind it? That's the question we're going to leave you with. We'll pick up again next time with a great story about horses and hugs. How's that for a teaser? So thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, do please share them with your friends. And do please leave a review in iTunes or whatever podcast provider you're using. That's a great way for others to learn about these podcasts. So thank you for listening and enjoy your training.